the rest of you, let's open up our Bibles together. Uh, we are in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 today, verse 38. If you're visiting, we are going through the gospel of Matthew, and you have caught us at verse 38. So Matthew chapter 38 through verse 42. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pick one up over at the resource table. Uh, yeah, so you can follow along with us. We are at Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, and we'll read through verse 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All right, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Uh, God, as we uh, open up your scripture, as we deal with the issues of retaliation and revenge and vengeance and everything that that includes, God, we know uh, where our heart naturally goes. We know our notion of justice and our idea of fairness often do not line up with what your word is calling us to do. So we pray, God, that this would be transformative, that your spirit would guide and direct us as we unfold the pages of your scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. When you have been wronged, do you want revenge? When somebody has hurt you, do you seek to pay them back? Do you have this natural desire for vengeance? Most of you asking those questions, uh, you feel uncomfortable that probably a vast majority of us, the answer is yes. But that doesn't look good, so you just kind of like don't say anything. Because most of the time when I ask these questions, you guys are all like throwing out answers. When I ask you, hey, do you like to do revenge? Nobody said anything. I heard crickets. Because I think there's an innate desire within you and I to retaliate when it was wronged. So I, I parent six kids. I have never had to teach one of my children to retaliate. I haven't. At no point have I watched one brother hit another brother, and then I go up to the brother who got hit and said, hey, now what you need to do is you got to hit him back. If he kicked you, you kick him back. No, that, that comes really natural. That's the guaranteed going to happen in the younger years. No, I have to teach them to not respond with retaliation. In the Marvel comic world, there's actually a character. His name is the Punisher. And the Punisher, bad stuff happens to his family, and he makes it his job, his mission in life, to be judge, jury, and executioner against bad people. And very popular comic series. They've even made it in movies and, and TV shows. I, I was even, I was, I was listening to the, the radio and I was flipping through the channels and there was a country song on and, and I'm listening to this song the first time and it seems like the girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, is wishing good luck on her ex-boyfriend. That she's really hoping he falls in love and all of this stuff and it's kind of a weird song you listen to it initially and you think, that's, that's pretty big of her. She's wishing all this stuff on her ex-boyfriend. Like, that's not your usual go-to. But as the song progresses, she hopes all this stuff happens and he falls deeply in love. And then I hope he, she cheats on you. 
And now you'll know how I feel. Like she wants to see his heart crushed and destroyed by romance and love so she will get a sense of vengeance. Because I think when we're wronged, we have a longing for our perceived idea of justice and fairness. We want revenge. We want it now. We want payback. Here's the problem. Retaliation is not the way of Christ. The follower of Jesus is gracious, merciful, kind, compassionate, loving, and ultimately they entrust the Lord with vengeance and judgment rather than taking it into their own hands. So that's what we're going to be dealing with today. Paybacks versus grace. As we take notes, uh, we're going to begin by looking at the current practice. We're going, to, we're going to consider what Jesus is referencing, what he's talking about in the first century, and how it was all playing itself out with the Pharisees. Secondly, we're going to look at the countercultural payback. The countercultural payback. How Jesus expects his people to respond to being wronged and to be harmed. It just doesn't make sense to you and I. And then lastly, we're going to look at the Christ principle in all of it. We're going to see ultimately how this is so, uh, the way of the gospel. This is the ethos. This is the, the culture of Christianity as one in which we do not seek revenge, but we extend grace and mercy. All right, let's pick up as we begin at verse 38 and we see the current practice. Now, if as a visitor and, and kind of give you where we are in our sermon series, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount right now. And one of the things we've seen with Jesus is he is intensifying the Christian life. He is, he is raising the bar of what he expects of his children and constantly is addressing heart issues. They thought it was okay to hate your brother as long as you didn't kill him. And Jesus said, no, that's not okay. They thought it was okay to lust after a woman as long as you did not commit adultery. Jesus said, no. They thought it was okay to divorce as long as you did it neat and properly. Jesus said no. And last week, they thought it was okay to swear, to make oaths, to make promises, but as long as you didn't promise them in the name of God, it was okay to lie about it and not make good on your promise. And once again, Jesus is saying no. He's calling them out in their hypocrisy, and specifically in our section, he's going to challenge their hypocrisy on the matter of personal rights and revenge. All right, First question I want us to ask is, what is he referencing? Read with me. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Lex Tellianus. It is Latin, the law of retaliation. Initially, it was much more personal and even barbaric at times. It was part of Babylonian law, then Roman law. It was the idea that an offender should be punished for the same hurts that they've implemented by, inflicted by the same hurt. So 21st century BC, the Hammurabi's Code, it's like one of the earliest books of law. For example, if someone broke someone's bone, they would in turn break the bone of the person who broke the bone. So Friday, in the, in the most strictest form of this, unfortunately, my son broke his thumb in a football game tackling a guy Friday. Hammurabi's code would give Josiah the opportunity to break the running back who broke his toe by tackling him. You understand, not his toe, but his thumb. So it's that kind of idea. Uh, Hammurabi's code, if a son hit his father, 
attacked his father, he would lose his hand so he could not attack his father anymore. So that's kind of this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth mentality. It's really the spirit, and we see it really early, way before uh, Himarati's Code, way before Babylonian law, Genesis 4.23. Here's the, the spirit of this idea. This is Lamech. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So it's that retaliation mentality. But what ended up happening over time is where it became very personal and at times barbaric, it transitioned toward the authorities. People of power and authority in the courts, they were the ones implementing it. And a lot of the physical punishment ended up being substituted by monetary financial equal. So rather than taking the hand, that was the equivalent of so much money is how it went out. Now, when we get to the Old Testament application of this, we, we start seeing some similar principles in all of it. Uh, Exodus 21, 24, and 25. So men are striving together, and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children comes out, but there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. So here's the scenario I don't know what context this is, but two guys are fighting, and there happens to be a pregnant woman there. And in the midst of the fighting, somehow the pregnant woman gets hit. It causes her to go into labor. She has the baby. If the baby's healthy, mom's healthy, the guy who hit her ends up being fined. Now, in the midst of all this, the mom dies, the baby dies, the guy who hit her, he's going to end up dying. That eye for an eye... uh, punishment. Leviticus 24 20, it says regards to hurting a neighbor. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Deuteronomy 19 21, this is about bearing false witness. Then you shall do to him as he has meant to do to his brother. So however he was trying to hurt his brother through a false witness, through lying and deceit, you in turn will punish that person by doing the same with that individual. But the big deal is the judge, the courts, the authorities carried out the justice in these situations. Well, how have you seen retaliation take place in your life? How have you participated in revenge, in retaliation? What do you think about this notion for an eye for an eye? Do you think it's right? Do you think it's wrong? Do you think it's fair? Do you think it's unfair? That's what he's referencing. But secondly, another question I want to ask, what was the reason for this practice? And this is key because what we're going to see is the Pharisees start here. They pervert it. They twist it. They use it for their own benefit, their own gain. So, So why in the world did God in the Old Testament specifically follow this lex talionis, this law of retaliation? I'd say four ways we know. Specifically, number one, to deter and discourage wrongdoing. To deter and discourage wrongdoing. We can see this as a case study in the United States right now. Certain cities, certain states have severely limited uh, the punishment for crimes. There's certain states that are making it, unless it's a certain level of a felony, you don't even need to have bail. You cannot hold a person in. So what is happening in these cities and these towns, are, they're, they're committing crimes because there's no fear of consequences. 
Worst case, they, they, they charge you, they take you into the, the courts, and then they release you, and you're back on the streets, and eventually you'll go to court, and maybe eventually down the road you end up in jail, but a lot of cases it's not. So it, it's made criminals, it's made lawbreakers become very brazen. And one of the things that this was doing is if you do these things, it was very clear the consequences. If you killed somebody, you were going to be killed. It wasn't a debate. That was what was going to happen. So it would make you think twice about killing somebody because you kind of like your life. And you don't want to have your life taken. Romans 13.2 warns us about this. Those who resist, the authorities will incur judgment. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And that's the authorities. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carried out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So you see what, one of the main reasons for these laws, it was to, to kind of create some stability in the society that people would not just, it wasn't the Wild West where you could just do whatever you want and nobody could stop it. There was consequences. Secondly, and here's the important thing, because the Pharisees were twisting it, it was to prevent personal retaliation. It was to minimize vengeance. Rare occasions, the victim might be the one that carried out the punishment, but the vast majority of the time, it was the judges. It was the courts who did the trial, who did the sentencing, and implemented the judgment Leviticus 24, 14. It wasn't the individual that's done wrong here. It's the group that ends up doing it. Bring out the camp, out of the camp, the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on him, and let all the congregation stone him. So it was this idea that was a, it was very public. It wasn't this individual where he did this to you, therefore you get to do this to him. So it prevented personal retaliation. Secondly, in the big picture of all of it, it left vengeance to the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. And entrusting judgment, entrusting vengeance into the hands of God's ordained authorities was ultimately trusting that God was going to deal with this, that you and I did not have to deal with it. And then the last thing that it would do is it would make sure that punishment, most of the time, fits the crime. It restricted compensation to the value of loss. Proverbs 24, 29, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. And it says, do not do that. Because that's how we think. We, it, it, we need to realize that punishment fits the crime. Imagine today. So you are on, you, you leave the Y, you go right, you're going to the highway, and you go, I think the speed limit's 35. I'm, I'm 99% sure. In the moment, I'm starting to think, like, is it 35? It's 35. You get pulled over for 36. Technically speaking, you are what? You are speeding. They pull you over. They arrest you. They do trial. You are sentenced to death. Who here is ever speeding again? Right? I mean, let's be honest. Like, I'm driving 30 at that point. I will never, ever, because like, I don't want to really be killed for driving too fast. Now, would the punishment fit the crime? One mile per hour over and the death penalty. No. So one of the things that this Lex Talionis would do, this idea of an eye for an eye, is it, it made punishment, it made judgment to a sense fair and fitting. 
It was proportional to the crime. It helped society direct how and, and what the punishment should be. Well, do you understand the heart behind this practice? You see that God had a purpose. It's, it's not what the Pharisees ended up deciding it would be. Do you see the hypocrisy of using this to defend personal vengeance and justice? If anything, it actually is, is the, the proof text of why you can't avenge personally. But yet the Pharisees were using it as a reason to do whatever they wanted. So that's the current practice. We saw the reference. We saw the reason for it. Let's now look at the countercultural payback. Jesus' expectation is not what you and I would expect. He challenges them to a radical application of the gospel. Notice, first of all, the surprising reaction. Read verse 39 with me. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So what the Pharisees were doing, they would argue that they could implement instant judgment and justice. No judge, no courts, nothing. And they would come back to these verses in the Old Testament and say, nope, that's what it's saying. So somebody does something wrong, I can instantly do it back to them. No strings attached because it's my right to revenge. And Jesus is saying, not so fast, not the proper response to wrong. What do you, what do you do if somebody startles you? Somebody scares you? Who here jumps? Who here might throw a, a fist at somebody? It's kind of natural, right? Like I watched videos online where it was a funny scare, but then like the person like ended up swinging at like their wife or their, their husband because they were just so startled. It was like, it's instant fight or flight, right? You either fight or you run. It says, I mean, poor Finn was woke up by his brothers and I don't, and they were not messing with him. They were just waking him up. He woke up Mike Tyson. Instantly, he just starts, just starts swinging away. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, time out. Like, to hold him down. And he's like, like, I don't know if he was in a fight when he was sleeping. And it just, it got real when his eyes opened. But you understand, like, that is our natural response, right? Let's be candid with one another. When somebody wrongs you, when somebody speaks negatively of you, what do you want to do naturally? Speak back at them. You, you, you thought you, sticks and stones don't break your bones, words won't hurt you. I bet I can hurt you. That's our natural, that is our, our, our reflex for vengeance. That's why God had to warn us in Leviticus 19, 18. You should not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. He's telling them to not walk by the flesh. He's telling them to not follow it, because that is our response I mean, yesterday we heard a lot, those that went to the marriage conference and you're talking about marriage conflict. Like, isn't it easy when your spouse hurts you, what do you naturally want to do? Hurt your spouse. That is how our hearts are normally directed apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're willing to hurt your spouse because they hurt you, everybody else is fair game, right? Coworker, yeah, Kind of care about my spouse a little bit more. So I'm willing to hurt her when she upsets me. You can better believe I'm willing to hurt you. 
You understand? And, and Jesus is, is, is challenging them. That's not the reaction that you're supposed to be. And there's another element in all of it is earlier in Matthew chapter 5, he said that they are the salt of what? Salt of the earth. They're to be the light of the world, city on a hill. And, and one of the things we saw in all that is that means you and I, we stand out. We represent Christ. We're, we're, we're different. And I would argue our lack of retaliation makes us stick out like a sore thumb in our culture. Because our culture not only defaults to that, it celebrates it. It encourages it. It expects it. But Jesus reminded us in John 17, 16, you are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Now, I I don't want to digress too much. But some people would use this passage to argue for being a pacifist. Because he says, don't resist evil, some people would argue we should never engage in war. We should never um, be, like police, we should not have police. We should just kind of let life kind of go as it goes. We don't fight evil. Uh, I I would argue that's... not at all what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, give you an example, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves there to God. Resist the devil. If he wants us to resist the evil one, you better believe he's going to say to resist evil. So that's not what Jesus is speaking of here. What he is speaking against, remember, that's the big picture, that the Pharisees thought it was cool to be personal judge, jury, and executioners. That everybody gets to be the, the uh, punisher. And he's saying, no, that, that, that is not the, the attitude of the gospel. Well, what's your natural response to being wronged? Is your reflex vengeance? Are you different than the world when you're wronged? Does, does God oppose all resistance of evil? Yes, he does not oppose all resistance of evil. That's, that's not the case. That is not, this is not, we need to get rid of the military and the police and, and just live in this kind of a kumbaya hippie world where like whatever happens, happens. That's not what he's saying. Not only is it a surprising reaction, it is a sacrificial response. Go on to verse 40 with me. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Once again, because we have to make these clarifications, he, he is not saying self-defense is never the case, okay? He's not saying that if somebody comes up and punches you, get up and get punched again. It's, that's not, once again, what he's talking about. But we, we need to understand, first of all, let's look at, we're going to look at each individual example he gives us. Jewish culture, a slap was as demeaning as it came. It was an assault on your honor. Even a slave would prefer to be beaten on their back than to be slapped across the face. John 18, 22, when they were making a mockery of Jesus, what did they do? When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. And it's the idea they struck Jesus across the mouth, either backhand or normal. So the focus in all of that is not retaliating and avenging. It's the potential of being slapped again. It is being willing 
to experience more pain. I don't know if you've seen this guy online. He's part of YouTube's Brave Wilderness channel. His name's Coyote Peterson. The dude is crazy. I don't care what you say. What he does is he gets stung by various poisonous insects on video to determine which one is, hurts the most. Like, I think he's gotten a lot of money from this, but, like, I think there's easier ways to make a living. Like, I mean, I get stung by a bee, and it's like I'm almost on the cusp of dying. Like, everybody stop. Should we go to the ER? This guy got stung by, I guess the worst thing he's gotten stung by is a bullet ant. It has the most toxicity. So it was bad. It was, it was bad. So there is a sense where you and I, kind of in the mold of the Coyote Peterson, is we willingly put ourselves in situations where we might be harmed. I'm not saying put yourself in harm's way, so let me clarify. But knowing that at times, because we don't retaliate, we might be further insulted. We might be further hurt. He goes on to the lawsuits. Now, common in lawsuits at that time is people would not have tons of money. So one of the things that they would lose based on a lawsuit, guess what? They're close. They're close. And, and this is not saying that all lawsuits are wrong, too. Once again, we need, to, we need to make that clarification. There's a time and place sometimes where you need to get the courts involved to make a wrong a, a right. But the tunic would have been the shirt, and sometimes that would have been the payment. But if, it, if that was not enough, they would involve the cloak. The cloak would have been the coat. Here's the, here's the unique thing of cloaks in the first century. It was often their blanket for sleeping. So sometimes you might lose your cloak. I don't even know how this would have all played itself out. They would have to return the cloak at night to you. So it was almost like custody of the cloak. I get your cloak during the day, but at night so you don't die from from. The cold, you get your, and now I'm thinking of all this stuff. I'm like, do they wash it? I don't know if I want some guy wearing my cloak. And then, but that was how it was done. So kind of thinking through that idea, it was very sacrificial if you lost those things. It was, it made a big deal. And what Jesus is saying here is being willing to give up comfort and need. You want my, my shirt? You can have my coat too. This is selflessness that we're speaking of. Very sacrificial. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, regarding lawsuits. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He goes on another example where it's the idea if you're told to go one mile, go two miles. Uh, Not saying that we should become doormats to people, but one of the things that was law at the time is the Roman soldier could force a citizen to carry their backpack one mile, which is a Roman mile was slightly different, still far distance of his gear. Few things made the Roman soldier more hated by the citizen than when they would exercise this right that they had. Like, they were already hated because the Roman soldiers were, and the Roman Empire was doing what to people? They were, it starts with an O, ends with an N, oppression. They were oppressing these people. And then you're going to make me carry, and we see an example, it wasn't a backpack or gear that was carried. Do you remember when this happened in the, first, in the New Testament? 
in the gospel? Luke 23, 26. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. They, they didn't look at the crowd and say, hey, would anybody like to carry this cross? Do we have any volunteers? No, the Roman soldiers, because they had that right, they took Simon and said, hey, hey, buddy, you're carrying this. He had no choice, and that's how it went. And what Jesus is saying, if they have you do that, don't stop in the mile. Go two miles. Go above and beyond. It's that idea of taking up the cross and denying ourselves, Because that is the culture of the kingdom. Sacrifice for Jesus. And for so many of us, that is, is unsettling. It kind of makes us a little sick to the stomach. It, it, it gives us a bad taste in the mouth. Like, we don't like to do things that we feel are beneath us. But the way of Jesus is we sacrifice. We're, we're willing to endure. Well, are you willing to endure hardship for the sake of Jesus? To go above and beyond? Are you willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of Christ? So we see the current practice. We see the reference, the reason for it. We see the countercultural payback. That it, it's not only surprising, it is sacrificial. Well, as we finish with the last verse, I want to see the gospel application that's all over the place. First, notice the focus on others. The focus on others. He says, give to the one who begs from you. So you have this situation. Somebody's begging. You have something that they could have. And he's saying, give it to them. Do we like to share? We don't. Ananias and Sapphira, we looked at last week with regards to lying. Ultimately, they didn't want to give up all the proceeds because part of it they thought was mine. I guarantee, and I think everybody's doing a fine job as parenting. We were to go over right now and watch video of the nursery. There's probably some selfishness going on. Call me a realist. At some point, one of the kids is saying those words. It starts with an M. What's the word? Mine. Me. But can you blame them? Because they grow up in a culture that is a what culture? It's a me culture. I mean, I'll always remember the song. It's like, I'm putting it in your head now, so I apologize. Whitney Houston. The greatest love of all is happening to me. You know, I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. I really want to make sure you have that in your head. If I fail, if I believe, yeah. Guess what that song's about? Self-love. It's about loving ourselves. So, so when we hear Jesus say this, it's so uncomfortable to us that he's saying instead of me, it's supposed to be you. When we're wronged, we focus on the wrong. We focus on the wrongdoer. We focus on the hurt. And he's saying, you need to err on the side of kindness. Micah 6, 8. I love that verse. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justice. And this is the part I want to emphasize. Love kindness. And walk humbly with your God. 
I think we love people being kind to us, but we don't love the notion of kindness. It's so much easier being unkind, is it not? So much easier. I mean, we can all probably do a pretty bang-up job of being a jerk. We don't have to take classes on it. Like, how can I be more rude? Like, I, I can do that. It's, it's being kind. It's being compassionate. When people have needs, you're more concerned about their needs than your own. That's the call of the Christian to be selfless. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. To be focused on others and friends, that is tough. As a pastor, I can be self-absorbed. And when I get a phone call, sometimes I don't want to help. But God has called me to help. There's times I don't want to hear about problems, but God has called me. And it's not just pastors. Like, we're, we're called to be focused on other people. We need to stop saying me and my and myself. And it means we sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our possessions. We sacrifice comfort. That is the heart of the gospel I mean, think of all the examples if we were to look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that he helped the beggars. How many times he wasn't inconvenienced by them? That he would stop doing what he was doing so that he could be concerned about the needs of another person. Well, are you me or other focused? How selfless are you? How selfish are you? How inconvenienced are you? Rubber hits the road. After we dismiss, you start talking to somebody, and somebody here says, hey, I really need help. Is you're going to think, like, ah. Our best thing, you know what we do, is like, I'll be praying for that. I could meet the need, but like, I'll, I'll be praying that you find somebody who wants to do what you want them to do, because I don't want to do it. So it's to focus on others. And then the second thing, it's the fullness of grace. And this is where the Pharisees, the scribes, they were missing the point. They were graceless. Because they thought they were perfect anyhow. They didn't need a savior. They didn't need forgiveness. So why in the world would they demonstrate that towards others? But notice the grace. This sacrificial display has a very unique quality in its grace. It's unmerited favor towards others. It's what we have in Jesus. John 1.16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What we have in Christ is grace. So because we have it in Christ, we demonstrate a guest to others. So we have been experiencing grace, so you and I should demonstrate what? grace. But what our tendency is, is no sympathy, no compassion, no remorse, no contrition, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He goes on, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So the person's like, man, I really need some help. And what we, we might not say it, but deep down we're thinking, 
sorry about your luck, Chuck. Should have planned, right? Should have been a better steward of your money. Not my problem. Now, that doesn't mean blanket borrowing, okay? Like, we love to go to extremes. Because he's saying this, this means anybody ask me money, I got to give it to him. That's not what we're saying. But there's a spirit here, the idea of grace. When I waited tables at Chili's, one of the things I fought my managers on was comping meals if the customer was rude. Like, I literally would fight it. It angered me. It enraged me when my manager would step in. And I've been treating these people like kings and queens. They were rude and nasty to me the whole night. And then we're going to give them the meal for free or off. Like, I don't care if they write bad reviews. They're like, I would, I would get so angry. And sometimes my waiter, it's, it's that whole, uh, if you've worked in food service, the customer is always right. Yeah, whatever. They're not always right. They're rarely right. But when we would have a customer where we were terrible, food messed up, I messed up, those are the ones, man, I wanted to comp them. I felt genuinely bad. Like, I'm sorry, I'm a terrible waiter. I'm sorry I ruined your night. Please forgive me. There was even a couple of times I paid some stuff out of pocket, I think, to make up for it because I just, I so messed up. It's easy to feel bad for the person that feels worthy of feeling bad for. But I think what ends up happening, you and I, we end up like the other brother of the prodigal son, and we think it's not fair. That these people don't deserve grace. But that is what grace is. Do you get that? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is not wages paid for people that have it due to them. I'm a bullet point. Three, three corresponding texts. Just listen to it. Start letting it sink into the heart and the mind. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God has forgave you in Christ. Colossians 3.12. Put then on as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 Peter 3, 8, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Friends, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as professors of our faith, we are to extend grace and mercy and kindness and love and patience to unworthy people because God did that with you and I. God's instrument to the world is for us to be that kind of people. That the church should stand out like a sore thumb. That the, the, the Christian should be so different to the world. The world is chanting eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and we're extending grace and mercy and patience towards undeserving people. Well, have you received the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Do you extend grace to others? Do people have to earn favor from you? If you are only gracious to people that are nice to you, that is not grace. Are you an extension of his mercy in this world? One of the more known 
stories in our, in our culture in regards to the idea of judgment and vengeance and, and revenge is the story of the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, it's a book. It's been adapted into multiple movies. But the story follows Edmund Dantes. He's betrayed and falsely imprisoned by three main characters, one being a, a fairly dear friend of his. Well, while he's imprisoned unjustly, he learns about a treasure. He's able to escape from the prison. He's able to then find the treasure, and that's when the story truly begins. Because at this point, he's got all this treasure. He's no longer in prison. Choice A would be go on and live a good life. You've got this newfound lease on life. Or plan B, let's, now that you have the resources, let's concoct a very intense revenge plot. He chooses plan B. And he goes out of his way to ruin the men, the three men that arguably ruined his life. And I think as you read the book, as you watch the movie, you are rooting for Edmund. It seems fair. It seems just. The three men that betrayed him, you end up hating. And you so long and desire that they would be finished because of it, that they would experience the punishment due to them for what they did. Edmund even argued throughout the story that he was God's instrument of justice. But over time, guess what the vengeance did? It consumed him. It controlled him. He, he, he failed to realize what he was doing to real people, and, and it was much more intricate that it was impossible for him to just impact the three people. He was impacting their families and their friends, and, and it got to a point where he even says, I've exceeded the limits of vengeance. His relationship with God was even strained. He's like, I, I, in the end, I don't know what I'm doing. It wasn't as satisfying as he it dreamed it would be. And I think that is often our hearts when we're wronged. We are gripped with revenge. If we suffer, we want the wrongdoer to suffer equally, big and small in our marriages, in our work relationships with our neighbors, with our friends. But praise God that God does not act like you and I. Praise God that he is not fair like you and I. We want fairness with people. You did wrong to me, he needs to experience the same thing that happened to me. Well, if God was fair, based on our definition of fair, all of us here Hellbound, condemned, damned. But he's not fair like that. No, he's gracious. He's merciful. What was due unto us, his son had done unto him. Because of grace. So I want to challenge you, the next time you are wrong, you're going to have a choice. Will I be like the world? Will I retaliate? Will I revenge? Will I plot? Will I scheme? Or will I be like Christ and extend grace and mercy. Think about it. Jesus, as he's being crucified, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Could you say the same thing to the wrongdoer in your life? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the amazing demonstration of this principle in the gospel. Lord, we ask for forgiveness for how often we are a people who are retaliators. We are a people who love to, uh, at the end of the day, seek revenge, seek judgment. We're, we're graceless. We're, we're selfish. We uh, just don't like to leave vengeance into your hands. So God, we ask for forgiveness. We pray, God, that we would be different that we would be the salt that you have called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this time we are going to celebrate communion. Uh, Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After he took the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to the man who betrays him. I think in light of today's passage, and as we consider communion, two thoughts I want us to consider. Number one, you and I, we are the wrongdoer. We need to make that distinction. As we come into communion, we are not the wronged party. We are not the victim. No, we were the perpetrators. We were the assaulters. We are the ones that have sinned against God. We are the ones that have defied him. We are the ones who have been his enemy. And with that in mind, we are worthy of wrath and judgment and condemnation. And as we celebrate communion, we are being reminded that God does not retaliate on us, but rather on Jesus. That he has experienced the wrath that you and I deserve. That's why we can celebrate with communion because it really is a celebration that I've been forgiven, that I'm a child of God, that I have a place in heaven waiting me and right now I get to walk with him until that glorious day that we are recipients of grace. Well, who should participate in this? If you are a sincere believer in Jesus Christ, I encourage you. Now, Paul does warn us to examine our hearts. He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I do want to encourage you. If you don't know Jesus, please do not participate with the communion. If you're in a dark season of rebellion and you just don't feel right, I don't want to numb the conscience of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of his word. I would encourage you to use this time to pray and to to talk with the Lord. Parents, we don't have a set age as far as when we think you should or should not. I, I think you need to exercise caution and discernment that your child has faith that's consistent with repentance, that you see fruit in their life. But if they are and and you feel confident in that and they're walking with Jesus, then this too is for them. 
Let's pray. I'm going to pray for the elements. We'll pass them out as we sing, and then we'll participate at the end. God, we, we come right now, and we do acknowledge uh, that for many of us, we come with weary hearts. That life has been difficult. Situations have been straining. And God, we need to be refreshed. So we pray that this time might be uh, refreshing, God, as we celebrate ultimately what Christ has done, that he broke his body for us, that he shed his blood for us, and that we are in a right relationship with you as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.